When I was a child, um, the church gathering that I attended with my family uh, went on excursions every year, and we went to this place up in North Carolina uh, between Highlands and Franklin, and um, there was, it was beautiful, first of all, and there was a lot of activities that we would do when we got there. Um, one thing I remember we would do is we would go whitewater rafting in the cold, like it was so cold, mountain river. Um, another thing we did that uh, was a favorite of mine whenever I was a kid was we would go panning for gold in this little stream that ran through this old gold mine. Um, they, they put out like fool's gold for us as kids and we would, you know, go and pick it up out of the stream. Um, but then uh, on, on the last day of our little excursion that we had um, as, a, as a church gathering, they would have this like epic game of softball for all the grown-ups that I wouldn't even be able to participate in, but it just it got me jacked up still. And so we would do this, we would do this time and time again, and um, I would look forward, so forward to all these activities, but there was one thing in particular that really I had my heart set on, and really to the point of I would be dreaming about this place up there. And basically, there was a particular place on the river that you could hear as you're approaching. And so we would go down, and we would go down into this little, uh, you know, there's rocks everywhere, huge rocks. And we would go down, walk down under a cliff, and, and in, inside the cleft of this rock, we would turn around, and there would be this cascade of water just rushing down. And it was incredibly beautiful. And like I said, it was just something that I, I dreamed about even and just wanted to see time and time again. And I think, when I think of waterfalls, I think that, you know, I think of them as majestic. And I think that they're probably the only thing in nature that I can think of that can be classified as violent, but yet peaceful at the same time. Um, you know, they have this power about them, and they're affecting. So not only do they, uh, does the water come down and it creates a mist and it feeds the life around it, the nature, the trees that are growing, the plant life, but it also etches into the ground evidence of its existence that can be seen probably for thousands of years. I think Niagara Falls, when I think of waterfalls, right? And Niagara Falls is some place that I, I dream of going to. I have never been. I was actually talking to a friend the other day, and he's, he's been to Niagara Falls several times, and I just had to stop because I was getting envious of him. But whenever I think of Niagara Falls, I think about the three falls and how at their, at their the um, pinnacle of the flow of the falls, how thunderous of a roar it must make whenever you're approaching it. You could probably hear it from so far away. Um, and then also, of course, the incredible beauty to behold. I think waterfalls actually offer a representation of Jesus's intention for the church. So let's read together. If you have your Bibles, turn to Ezekiel chapter 47. 
We're going to start in verse 1. Then he brought me back to the entrance of the temple, and there was water flowing from under the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east. The water was coming down from under the south side of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. Next, he brought me out by way of the north gate and led me around the outside of the outer gate that faced east. There the water was trickling from the south side as the man went out east with a measuring line in his hand. He measured off a third of a mile and led me through the water. It came up to my ankles. Then he measured off a third of a mile and led me through the water. It came up to my knees. He measured off another third of a mile and led me through the water, and it came up to my waist. And again, he measured off a third of a mile, and it was a river that I could not cross on foot. For the water had risen. It was deep enough to swim in, a river that could not be crossed on foot. He asked me, and this is a vision, by the way, that Ezekiel's having. He asked me, do you see this, son of man? Then he led me back to the bank of the river. When I had returned, I saw a very large number of trees going along both sides of the river bank. He said to me, this water flows out to the eastern region and goes down to the Arabah. When it enters the sea, the sea of foul water, the water of the sea becomes fresh. Every kind of living creature that swarms will live wherever the river flows, and there will be a huge number of fish because this water goes there. Since the water will become fresh, there will be life everywhere the river goes. Fishermen will stand beside it from En Gedi to En Eglam. These will become places where nets are spread out to dry. Their fish will consist of many different kinds, like the fish of the Mediterranean Sea. Yet its swamps and marshes will not be healed. They will be left for salt. All kinds of trees providing food will grow along the banks, both banks of the river. Their leaves will not wither. Their fruit will not fail. Each month they will bear fresh fruit because the water comes from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be used for food and their leaves for medicine. And as we see here, Ezekiel has been given this vision of a flowing river out from the temple. This life-giving river, right? It's flowing, it's deep, it's fruitful, it's productive. And if you fast forward about 600 years after the life of Ezekiel, to Jesus' teaching in the temple during the Jewish festival of the shelters, which was a festival that they, they celebrated in, um, in Jewish culture. Um, in John 7.37, it says, On the last and most important day of the festival, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. The one who believes in me, as Scripture has said, will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. And he said this about the Spirit, those who believed in Jesus were going to receive the Spirit, for the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. And as a believer, there is this life-giving flow. Through the gift of the Holy Spirit within us, there's this fruitful, productive flow of kindness and love and joy and peace and patience and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. 
And it all amounts to the loving kindness of God for us. And it's a representation of God's kindness toward us by which we allow it to flow out of us. And in the Apostle Paul's letters, and probably most famously quoted in, in Romans and Ephesians and Corinthians, he talks about our bodies being the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. So as a Christ follower, I am now this temple of the Holy Spirit. I have this water flowing inside of me, this life-giving flow inside of me. So let's reread a few passages from Ezekiel with that concept in mind. And I'm going to start in Ezekiel 47 on verse 6. He asked me, do you see this son of man? Then he led me back to the bank of the river. When I returned, I saw a very large number of trees along both sides of the river bank. And we begin to see what this river is capable of here. He said to me in verse 8, through nine, he said to me, This water flows out to the eastern region and goes down to Arabah. When it enters the sea, the sea of foul water, the water of the sea becomes fresh. Every kind of living creature that swarms will live wherever the river flows, and there will be a huge number of fish because this water goes there. Since the water will become fresh, there will be life wherever the river goes. And this come, calls to mind in Romans 8 11 where it says, Paul, referring to the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, he said that the same power that raised Christ from the dead is within you. As a believer, we have a life-giving spring inside of us. Verse 10. Fishermen will stand beside it from En Gedi to En Eglam. These will become places where nets are spread out to dry. Their fish will consist of many different kinds like the fish of the Mediterranean Sea. There is an enormous and diverse harvest. And this reminds me of when Jesus was calling the disciples who were fishermen. And what did he say to them? He, he called them out and he said, I will make you fishers of men. And at the time, they had no idea that that would mean all men. But it, it's for all men. Diverse fish. In verse 12, all kinds of trees providing food will grow along both banks of the river. Their leaves will not wither, and their fruit will not fail. Each month they will bear fresh fruit, because the water comes from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be used for food, and their leaves for medicine. And we see there there's a sustained provision and a healing that occurs. And you may be thinking, okay, it sounds all great. I have this living water flowing within me, and, you know, I have this power that I have. Okay, well, why do I still feel alone sometimes? Why, do, why does this life overcome me at times? Why do I feel this way? I think we kicked off our, our Not So Random series last week, and I subtitled tonight's, series, tonight's message, uh, City on a Hill, because I want to talk to you, as Paul said, about kindness in relationship with the church. And the church was Jesus' idea, okay? He, he actually said to Peter in Matthew 16, 18, he said, 
on this rock I will build my church. And then he goes on to say that the gates of hell will not overcome it. So could it possibly be that we feel defeated sometimes, we feel overcome with the pressures, the difficulties, the battles that come with this human existence that we have? Could it be because we've gone to church for so long and we have stopped being the church? I submit to you tonight that the life-giving blessing of God, the kingdom of heaven come to earth, and the experience of that only is fully realized in the context of the church as Christ intended it. I believe as a church we've lost what God's intentions are. I'm not saying the church of Crosstown in particular. I'm saying the church as a whole has really lost the concept of what Christ intended for the church to be. And we see that the children of Israel in the Hebrew Scriptures also lost sight of this concept of church that Jesus wanted to establish. So, if you have your Bibles, let's read, turn to Isaiah 58, and we'll read verses 1 through 8. Cry out loudly, don't hold back, raise your voice like a trumpet, and tell my people their transgression and the house of Jacob their sins. They seek me day after day, delight to know my ways like a nation that does what is right and does not abandon the justice of their God. Sounds okay to me. They ask me for righteous judgments. Okay. They delight in the nearness of God. Okay. They say, why, the people say, why have we fasted, but you have not seen? We have denied ourselves, but you haven't noticed. And God responds, look, you do as you please on your day of fast and oppress all your workers. You fast with contention and strife to strike viciously with your fist. You cannot fast as you do today, hoping to make your voice heard on high. Will the fast I choose be like this, a day for a person to deny himself, to bow his head like a reed and to spread out sackcloth and ashes? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Isn't the fast I choose to break the chains of wickedness, to untie the ropes of the yoke, to set the oppressed free, and to tear off every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, to bring the poor and homeless into your house, to clothe the naked when you see him, and not to ignore your own flesh and blood? Then your light will appear like the dawn." And I think it's true that the church has gotten a bad name from, from outsiders, from non-believers that want to define the church as, as you know, a few, the, the fruit of a few bad apples, let me say. Um, but I believe as a church, we have, we played a responsibility in this definition of what the church is viewed as from the outside, let me give you an example. A Pew Research study that was conducted last year on why people go to church, these are church goers that took this poll. 69% said they attended to grow closer to God and to be a better person. 
And you might say, oh, well, that sounds all right. But I'm afraid that church has become a gathering of consumers, of people coming to be fed instead of being the hands and feet of God. Instead of a collective of Christ followers shining bright like the city on a hill, sacrificing for one another. You know, church has become this social media highlight reel, right? We, we put on our best face on Sunday mornings. We stand a little taller. We open our eyes a little wider. Or that might just be me. <laughs> but no, really, I mean, we've, we've become people that are afraid to share our pain and our hurt and really what we're going through on our faces because church has become something that you have to have it all together to be a part of. You have to have the smile. And inadvertently what we're doing is we're really building a wall around the church and saying you have to have it all together to be a part. From the beginning... God created and communicated in a way that said, it is not right for man to be alone. It's not good. God in the Hebrew scriptures laid out a plan and made a way for the Israelites to have relationship, a love relationship with each other and him. And Jesus in the Christian scriptures, he established the church as a a bright city on a hill. And some of us for so long have been striving to shine our light bright, but we're doing it alone instead of partaking in the brotherhood and the sisterhood of the church. I'm not advocating an end to personal responsibility, but I think that there is a clear exhortation in Scripture for us to carry one another's burdens. Others of us, if we're not trying to do life alone, we come to church to be fed, to be a part, to gain more knowledge, more power against darkness, to better ourselves and grow closer to God. And God is like, how much more power can I give you? You have the power that raised Christ from the dead living within you. And furthermore, I live within you, so how much more near to me can you get? Isaiah 1, 10 through 20 talks about worship without justice and how it's detestable to God. There was a song in the 70s. Maybe you've heard of it. It's called Asleep in the Light, and it's by this guy named Keith Green. It perfectly articulates the epidemic of the church and seeking to be near God and seeking knowledge and all of that without justice. And the entire song, the lyrics are fire, but I'm going to share three lines with you tonight that I think really articulate this point. He sings, The world is sleeping in the dark that the church can't fight because it's asleep in the light. 
may we be not a church that's asleep in the light. And we see a beautiful picture of the church as Christ intended in Acts. And Luke, concerning the early church, wrote in chapter 2, a sense of awe was felt by everyone. And many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles, and all those who had believed in Jesus as Savior were together and had all things in common, considering their possessions to belong to the group as a whole. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing the proceeds with all the other believers, as anyone had need. Day after day, they met in the temple area, continuing with one mind and breaking bread in various private homes. They were eating their meals together with joy and generous hearts, praising God continually and having favor with all the people. And the Lord kept adding to their number daily those who were being saved. Wow. As the band comes up, and we're purposefully giving more time to this moment that we'll have in a few minutes of prayer. But as the band comes up and our pastors come down to the front, I think that this is an incredible example of the life-giving river flowing from the temple that Ezekiel was talking about. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying that you need to sell all your possessions, maybe some of them, but I am saying that this is a perfect example of unity and hope and provision and justice and caring and kindness for one another that was spoke of 600 years before Christ even came. Let me ask you this tonight. What if we decided to let the life-giving water flow from us? Because I do believe it's a choice that we make. We all have it. We have to choose to walk in kindness. What if those who don't know Jesus became envious of our love and kindness for one another and in awe of our love and kindness for them? What if we became a church not known for our flooded building, but what if we became a church known for the cascade of living water flowing from each and every one of its members that made an impact for generations to come? What if we tore, tore down the walls of a sanctuary that says you have to have it all together to be a part, that has become a place where Christians escape the world? And what if we invited our Muslim coworker or the person that doesn't look or sound like us? What if we threw off our fake smiles and actually walked into the doors and took a brother or sister aside and shared our hurt and our pain. You know, what if we looked up at the people around us when we're at the grocery store and we purposefully didn't go to a self-checkout aisle and 
went to an actual aisle with a human being at the cash register and asked that human being how they were doing and if you could help them today. What if we told our hurting neighbor that we knew of a place that they could find hope and peace and acceptance and forgiveness and belonging and all they had to do was come as they are? I'll tell you what would happen. I think scripture does. We would begin to experience the kingdom of heaven here on earth in our lives. Life would grow in every place that we go. And God would add to our numbers daily. In closing, I really think that this is an incredible example. There's, I heard a story recently of a, a church gathering in Miami, Florida. There was a couple who uh, flew, to Florida, or flew to Mexico for a wedding. While they were in Mexico, they had a terrible car accident to the point where they didn't think that these two people were going to survive. And one of them was in a coma for several days. But the church body began to fly down there one by one and donate blood because they were in a small hospital in Mexico and they didn't have the blood that they needed to to, um, perform a transfusion and for this lady that's in a coma to get a surgery. So the body began to fly down there and donate their blood on their own dime. And one of the ladies that flew down there, she, she gave her blood and they ran the tests on it and it happened to be that it was incompatible. It was a rare blood type that was incompatible with this lady's, this lady's blood type. So they, she thought they weren't gonna be able to use it. Well, on the night of the surgery, a child came in in really bad shape. He was in need of a transfusion of blood. And he had a rare blood type. You see, this lady who was obedient and flew down She thought she was going to be donating blood to her friend. But you know what? God's providence, I believe, flows through the obedience of believers. Whenever we act like the church, God's providence flows through our obedience. And he turns our expectations upside down. and he brings greater purpose. Tonight, we're gonna get a little weird. We have a lot of time left. And I want everybody to receive prayer tonight. So I'm asking for everybody to line up in front of our pastors and elders. I I want you to come down and receive prayer for boldness and courage 
Because I think that's what it's going to take for us to really, really be the church in our communities. People see Jesus in our lives whenever we take the step to be kind and spread the love that we've received to those around us. We are the representatives of Jesus to this world. And I want you to ask yourself tonight the simple question, what does love and kindness require of me in my, at my job, in my family, to my, to my neighbor, at the store? What does love and kindness require of me? Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for the opportunity to choose kindness. We thank you for your spirit that dwells within us, a spirit of kindness and love. And we say tonight that we will be a church that chooses kindness, that chooses love, and that it won't matter what the person looks like, it won't matter what religion they are, but we will love them and we will accept them into our family. We will realize that some people need a demonstration before they have a revelation. And so we will be the demonstration of love and kindness to each and every person around us. We commit to that tonight. We thank you, Lord.